The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by James Heal and Craig Oliver, formerly a director of communications in Number 10 and now a partner at FGS Global. There have been reports this week that Rishi Sunak is looking to delay a reshuffle planned for the next few weeks until the winter. James, what's the thinking behind this? Yeah, really. So in Westminster, there are kind of two big questions that everyone's asking. When's the election going to be and when's the reshuffle going to be? And there needs to be a reshuffle probably uh, on both sides. That's the kind of thinking. And in terms of the government side, you know, Rishi Sunak came in in October last year and really had to steady the ship and put party management first. So there are a number of people who had to keep on. And I think this is this now reshuffle, which people have been expecting for a while. There's a lot of talk before the summer recess. Uh, ben Wallace made some comments, which, you know, sort of seen as suggesting that there was going to be a reshuffle in the coming days uh, last month. And now we read reports that the reshuffle is going to be only quite a small one, perhaps next week when Parliament returns or the week thereafter. And that would allow perhaps uh, ministers to carry on through the conference season rather than changing the whole you know, cabinet now, just when they're expected in a fortnight's time thereafter to uh, go and deliver a conference speech and maybe having a bigger reshuffle later in this year. In terms of what we can expect from that, I think that it's certainly worth looking at those um, ministers who are going to be standing down in the next election. So Ben Wallace is the obvious one. Um, he's now expected to be going uh, in a matter of weeks um, rather than months. Um, but other sort of junior ministers as well who've indicated they won't be standing again, those would seem obvious candidates to be replaced because I think there's not just at the cabinet level but lower down the ranks as well, a lot of people perhaps from the 2019 intake who have, have done their time and would hopefully like to go from being PPSs and sort of undersecretaries of state to the next rung up and get their hands on those ministerial red boxes. So it's going to be an interesting one. And I think talking to one special advisor in government, they said, well, look, the amount we can do now in government that's going to be felt on on the ground in a year's time is, is very limited. And so I think it's perhaps a shift as you, as you go into the kind of uh, 12 months to a general election period or campaign, um, there's a shift to kind of communicate. So I think the Cameron government's 2014 reshuffle is quite instructive here of all the past ones, which is that that was about getting the sort of best faces out on television, etc. Really making sure you had barnacles off the boat in order to kind of give the government the best hope going into an election to get their message out there. Craig, what do you make of the timing of this reshuffle? Well, listening to all of that, I was reminded of the old joke, which is I've predicted nine of the last two reshuffles. And the reason for that joke is that there's always fevered speculation about reshuffles or Westerns, or quite often there is. And the reason for that is that there's who's up, who's down is always going to be part of the currency of Westminster. But it's also, in certain circumstances, a useful tool to keep the troops in line. Uh, And I suspect that's sort of what's going on here. If you don't have it before conference, there's a good chance everyone will be well behaved at conference. And actually, I suspect getting that conference out of the way and looking like your prime ministerial at the end of it is probably top of Rishi Sunak's mind at the moment. And... James, should Rishi be worried about making enemies in this reshuffle? Or, as you say, he's getting close to an election anyway, so does it not matter so much? I mean, I think that what Rishi Sunak has done is always, I think, one sort of operating principle and unofficial is that they try and do the opposite of what Liz Truss has done. So obviously, you remember that really chaotic conference last year, as Craig says, when, you know, ministers were simply opposing the government line on issues Mm -hmm. such as uh, benefits, uh, benefit tapering 
And I think it's probably good to get, the, as you say, uh, keep all the troops in line and get through that conference period looking like one happy, stable team. But I think that alongside having, um, you know, keeping the troops in line there, it's also important to get the kind of people, best people in jobs. I think Rishinak isn't a kind of really super Machiavellian type political operator, really. And I think it's really about ensuring that they have the people he thinks are going to be delivering in those posts. I mean, all prime ministers say that, but I think he's perhaps less interested in the kind of machinery of politics than perhaps others are. Craig, this all sounds fairly routine. Is there um, any danger here for Rishinak, anything that could go wrong, any pitfalls to watch out for? Yeah, and I, I think all prime ministers are nervous of reshuffles because exactly, as you were just saying there, about stirring up the waters. And inevitably, you create enemies and people feel slighted. And if they think that, you know, that the next election is probably lost anyway for the Conservative Party and they've just been fired, their attitude towards the government's going to be uh, pretty tough, I think. So I think they'll be, they, they'll, they, that will be a big worry for Rishi Sunak. I think that not to be too difficult about it, I do think there's a question about how serious this is going to be as an impact in terms of the next election. The reality is, look, it's very unlikely Jeremy Hunt's going anywhere, very unlikely James Cleverley's going anywhere, very unlikely he's going to sack um, Suella Braverman, although I suspect he would dearly like to. Yes, Ben Wallace is going to move because we know he's leaving in the next election. But after that, you start getting to departments that are important, but aren't always on the news, aren't always key part of the agenda. So I think that there's a sense in Westminster of that this could be something that's a decisive move and could make a big impact in terms of the election. But the chances of it having an impact on how people vote, um, I, I think, are fairly thin. You definitely want people out there who are good at communicating, but also you want people out there who aren't going to screw up. So when you take all of that into account, it's not as appealing as it might first seem. And James, just lastly on this, so we'll have the reshuffle and then the party conference. And how does that, how does Rishi Sunak's agenda for then the next six, eight months looking towards an election shape up? What are they going to be looking to do after this? So, yeah, I mean, as I say, I think it'll be a sort of mini reshuffle rather than the kind of maxi one that some were predicting. Um, I think at that point, it then really starts to become about, you know, trying to make the judgment call of when it's going to be. And I, I think, you know, even talking to people in government, there's a divide as to whether it'll be spring or autumn. I think ideally it would be nice to have the option to go for the spring. But obviously, if, as some reports suggest, there could be more favourable economic sort of headwinds at the end of 2024, then it would indicate to that. And so really it's about ensuring everything is sort of time to maximum effect for that point talking up conservative I think plus areas so you know things such as I think you know it'd be interesting to say like education uh, the toy record on that would be one I think and also trying to make it about the economy and then I suppose reframing it on national issues and making it basically a kind of question of Rishi or, or Keir mm-hmm. uh, which but rather than about Labour versus Tory where Labour does much better so I think those, those are the kind of things we can expect to see as we approach the kind of six month run in before a general election. And Craig, can we turn to another story now? Rishi Sunak, he's found to have inadvertently broken the MP's code of conduct by failing to declare his wife's interest in a childcare company. And this was a company then that was allegedly set to benefit from changes to this year's budget. What do you make of this story? Yeah, I suspect it's probably going to be a ripple in terms of uh, the electorate. I think it'll be pretty much here today, gone tomorrow in terms of how people think of it. I suppose on one level, there is a negative, which is, look, I'm so rich, I didn't even realise quite how much I was exposed in this and that's not a great look but I doubt that that's going to be used very much against him by Labour or to effectively by Labour against him because I think the fact that he's incredibly rich is already priced into the equation but it doesn't look great but I suspect overall it's just a bit of an embarrassment and things will move on quite quickly. 
Yeah, and they've had this months back and forth. If you look at the correspondence with the Parliamentary Commission of Standards about what's a declaration and what's a registration, and he said it was on the record, but he should have actually said it physically in that liaison committee mm. uh, meeting. I, I think I was I was interested, I suppose, by quite a strident response by Angela Rayner. Part of the course you could expect, but equally a year out with Labour twenty points ahead in the polls, it will be interesting to see how their reform agenda for ministerial standards, which really beefs up the role, and I think would even give the ministerial advisor. Uh, the power to uh, compel ministers to be sacked in extreme cases, which is a pretty serious departure from the kind of model we have where the, the PM basically makes or breaks you. I would have expected, as we've seen in lots of different areas, Labour to kind of water down the rhetoric or change it, given they are probably going to be in power. But it doesn't look like they've done that on this case, which is interesting. And so I suppose it'll be the question of, you know, Tony Blair came in 1997 having campaigned on the issue of sleaze and promised to be whiter than white. Every time there was an indiscretion, no matter how inadvertent, it was sort of held back in Labour's face. So I, I wonder if we'll see the same thing if Labour do, in fact, win the next election. And James, just finally, the former boss of NatWest, Alison Rose, is set for a £2.5 million payout for leaving her job as head of the bank. And it seems now that she NatWest is under pressure to block the payment. Could you tell us what's happening here, what the latest is? So there's reports that ministers are considering whether to step in to block Alison Rose's payout. It's worth about £2.4 million, uh, after her role in the Farage debanking scandal. And I suppose it's quite interesting, really, how the government's approached this. I think most Tories genuinely feel quite aggrieved about it. It does seem, and, you know, talk to city commentators and what they've been writing as well, that, you know, NatWest really misstepped on this. So I think the Treasurer being careful to kind of, minister being careful to um, not sort of lead so much on the issue, but but sort of work out where their sort of responsibilities are and what their kind of powers are in, in a sort of functioning market economy. I think it's interesting that Labour hasn't really led on this. And I think that can be seen p- perhaps as part of not just their natural hostility or, or scepticism of Nigel Farage's causes, but also perhaps a one eye on the city reaction to all of this at a time when the Tories are struggling with business. Um, and I think that, it, again, is testament to the power of Nigel Farage's uh, ability to to push a cause or campaigns rather striking, I think, the contrast between what his successor as the leader of the Reform Party, Richard Tice, uh, when he was reported for the first time to be have been debanked two years ago by Monzo, barely caused a ripple. And yet we spent weeks talking about Nigel Farage's case. And obviously there's factors involved, the fact that it seemed more serious in this case, and it was Coots as a name. But I do think that's a telling sign of Nigel Farage's power with sort of a good 15, 20% of the electorate. And that's why the Tories are very glad that at present he hasn't re-entered the uh, political arena. Craig, why do you think the Tories are taking this so seriously? Is it because, as James says, they've got Nigel Farage pushing them for it? Or do you think some people in government genuinely think that this is a big issue? I think it's a mix of all of those things. I think that the Conservative Party thinks that there was an agenda where a person who tended to lean towards like the metropolitan liberal elite um, was seen to have been running a bank where people that maybe were on their side were being debanked, that kind of thing. And I think it sort of adds to that kind of culture war element of things that they're quite willing to stir up when it suits them. I think that it's a good point, though, about, look, be careful what you wish for. Um, one scandal that suits you, another one won't. So you need to think these things through. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.